Uh, it's great to be here. Really thankful. Um, so I'm from South Carolina, but I spent some time in DC and DC was the first time I was ever in a big city, at least toward the north. And um, there's not many trees and there's not much grass. And I was working with a pastor and he came down and he spoke at Southeastern Seminary and I came down with him and I got out of the car and I went and I laid on the ground. I was so thankful to be on grass with trees. And uh, yeah, because it's home. Um, yeah. So thankful to be back here. It's been a great time this morning. Really encouraging and um, seeing the work of the Lord here. And then also spending time with the elders the past few days. So, so thankful. Um, if you've got a Bible, open up to James chapter 2. We're going to look at a passage in, uh, in James chapter 2 in particular, verses 14 through 26. Um, it'll be helpful to have the word open so you can follow along and be where we are. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Um, my family, we were in Louisville. Um, I was there for about 10 years and married my wife and then married. We were there about five years and then we moved up to Maine so I could pastor this church. And when we were looking at houses, same thing happened in Louisville. We owned a house in Louisville. Um, but you read the description of a house and then you go in houses and sometimes it's very different than what you're expecting. But we're good at doing that. Humans are good at kind of working words around to say what we want to say, but it's, it's not always accurate. And what you learn pretty quick is that talk is cheap. People can say all they want, but, but oftentimes that's not accurate. Um, well, in our passage, James is confronting this idea when it, when it comes to faith in Christ. So in the early church, they came to realize really early on, it's easy for people to claim to have a faith in Christ. But really what they were claiming didn't produce any fruit. It, it was just a talking faith. So they didn't obey the Lord. They didn't grow in their love for God and for other people. Their, their faith wasn't real. It wasn't genuine. It was just words apart from any actions. In other words, it was, it was faith without works. And so in this passage, what, what the Lord is warning us about this morning is that a faith without works won't save you. That's the main idea of this passage. Faith without works won't save you. So hear the word of the Lord. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So a, a quick refresher on this New Testament epistle, on what's going on in the book of James at this point. So he, he's writing to churches with Christians, again, who are tempted to hear the word, but not do the word. 
and just sort of to, to leave it at that. Christians who are tempted to not love their fellow believers faithfully. That's a theme that you see throughout the letter from James. Christians who are tempted to speak out of anger too quickly. You see all of this if, if you read through the book of James. And James knew it would be a temptation to think, well, in Christ, my sins are forgiven. So when I initially placed faith in Christ, all of my sin was taken care of. So it's probably not a big deal that I continue to sin in, in these particular ways. It, it doesn't really matter what I do with my life, the way I live my life, as long as I believe in Christ. I can probably do whatever I want and, and still make it to heaven. And at times, most of us at least are probably tempted to think the same thing. But what the Lord wants to make clear to us in this passage is, is that faith without works won't save you. So he, he gives us this rhetorical question in verse 14. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And of course, the, the answer that God gives in this passage is no. So faith without works won't save you. And, and James is going to give us four main reasons to really believe that, to really prove it to us. And if you're taking notes, these are kind of the four different headings that we're going to see throughout this passage. So first, he's going to show us that a faith without works is a dead faith. It's kind of the first thing that he shows us. Second, he's going to point out that Satan has more dead faith than we do. Third, he'll remind us that the, the history of redemption, the history of God saving his people, proves that real faith always produces good works. And then finally, he'll show that the point of your faith is actually to produce good works. So, so what's the evidence that faith without works can't save you? Well, first, a faith without works is a dead faith. So look at verse 14. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So again, he's saying the kind of faith that doesn't produce any good works is a dead faith, a faith that's not alive. In verse 15, he says that, that that's like words without action. Look again at the example he gives us. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So he's saying, you know, if somebody's cold and hungry, what can words divorced from action really do to them? What, what can that provide for them? And that's actually a good question to ask. So he, he uses it as an illustration to make this bigger point. But it is good to pause and to think, okay, do I have fellow church members that I know have practical needs and I know I have the means to step in and to help care for them, but I'm stopping short of doing that. And instead I'm doing what happens in the illustration here, which is just saying, go in peace, be warm, be well-fed without actually providing for them. Always a good question to be thinking about. And of course, if you tell them to be warmed and filled, can, can those words by themselves cover those people up and keep them warm? No. Can, can they eat those words, right? Uh, of course not. Those words are only valuable if they lead to action. Well, faith apart from works is the same thing. So verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He makes it more clear down in verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, when James talks about the spirit, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the, the animating life inside of us. So the thing that's different between a living person and, and a dead person, it's actually the same way Luke uses it. 
in chapter 8, verse 55 of his gospel. So if you, if you are comfortable writing in your Bible, there are times where there'll be a word that you'll see, like here, where it says, as the body apart from the spirit is dead. And you think, okay, spirit, probably talking about the Holy Spirit, right? And again, he's not. Sometimes it's helpful to write in the margin, Luke chapter 8, verse 55, right? And to be able to see that in James. And then when you're confused, you can be reminded. Go back to the gospel and see, okay, I see how this word is being used. So this is Luke chapter 8, verse 55. And they were told, uh, this is when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. Luke 8, 55, and her spirit returned. And she got up at once. So the spirit here is just shorthand for the living part of, of a person. And just like James has been talking about, he, he makes it clear in verse 26 that faith apart from works is like a corpse. Faith without works is a dead faith. But praise God, that's not the kind of faith he gives us as Christians. He doesn't give us a dead faith. So Romans chapter 12, verse 3 says, God assigns our faith to us. Good to be reminded about. We can't even boast of that, right? Even though the gospel comes by faith alone in Christ alone, even our faith is assigned to us. We, we have no reason to boast, no reason to brag at all. So he gives us our faith. Okay, but, but a dead gift is a bad gift, right? So if you're going to give your children a cat, you're not going to give your children a dead cat, right? If you are, you should talk to your elders. It's a bad idea. It, if you're going to give your teenager a car, you're not going to give them a car that, that has died. Those are bad gifts. No, good gifts are living gifts, and that's the only kind of gift God gives. So in James, you might remember this, chapter 1, verse 17, talks about the kind of gifts that God gives us. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So God only gives good gifts. A dead gift is a bad gift. Therefore, the kind of faith God gives, he only gives living faith, faith that has life. God is not like the person in verse 16 who says, go in peace, be warmed and filled. He, he doesn't wish us well, but not actually give what we need to pursue him and trust in him and, and follow him. He only gives a faith that's alive. In fact, listen to all the different verbs that are used for faith in the New Testament. So when faith is personified and it does things, listen to all of these different verbs just to see how active and living faith is. Faith obeys. Faith keeps, faith abides, it follows, it comes, it enters, it goes, it eats, it drinks, it loves, it hears, it sees. Well, a dead thing can't do any of that. It's all these active things. So James here, he, he's calling on us to check the pulse, check the pulse on our faith in Christ. Is it alive? Does it act? Does our faith produce things? So in particular, does, does your faith lead you to love God more faithfully and love other people more faithfully? Is it alive? Or are you more gracious with other people than you were maybe five years ago in your Christian life? Or are you sensitive to sins that you never would have noticed two years ago? Isn't that a gift when that happens? Don't you see that in your Christian life, that you're more sensitive to sins that at the beginning of your Christian life, you never would have noticed. That's because you have a living faith that's active. Again, because that's the kind of faith that God gives us. So, so is your faith alive? God only gives living faith and living things work. And a dead faith, that's not the kind of faith that will get you into heaven. 
Look at the question James asks in verse 14. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? It's a rhetorical question, but the, but the answer is clearly no. A dead faith can't save anyone. And there, there have always been people around the Christian church who have thought to themselves, I know that I've left my family. I know that I've left my wife and my children, or I know I've abandoned the local church, or, or I know that, that I'm only pursuing money and I'm unloving toward God and others, or, or a million other examples, but I still believe in Jesus. Don't you hear that regularly? As a pastor, I come across that regularly, where people think I'm all set. I know I'm sitting in these ways, but I have faith in Christ. I believe in Jesus. Well, of course, what James is saying is that's wrong. That's that that kind of faith. That's not going to get you into heaven. That's not the kind of faith that is saving. You need a living faith to get into heaven. And this makes sense to us, right? Dead things don't get you anywhere. We lived in Louisville before we moved to Maine, and that's where the Kentucky Derby is. And so it was always a fun time being there for the Derby. We'll just try to enter the Kentucky Derby with a dead horse. It's, it's not going to work. Dead things don't get you anywhere. As crazy as, as that idea is, it's even more crazy for somebody to think they're going to walk past God into heaven on the basis of a dead faith. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So faith without works is a dead faith, which means a faith without works won't, won't save you. James goes on to say that, that for the person who thinks a dead faith will be enough to get them into heaven, then they should expect to see Satan there too. So verse 19, he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So again, he's confronting the idea that faith apart from works can save someone. So you don't have to have holiness in life. You just need to believe the right things with your head. It's all just cognitive. But James' point here is that demons believe the right thing about God in their head. That's what he says. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but if you took a theology test and Satan took the same theology test, he would score higher than you. He would score higher than me. Isn't that wild? That's true. It's a good reminder to us that, that theology isn't what saves us. And good theology is not a necessary fruit of love for the Lord. You can study theology in the flesh all day long, right? It's not a, a necessary indicator of, of love for the Lord. In fact, again, theology apart from good works is exactly what the demons have. They know exactly who the Lord is. It's instructive to see the example he uses here. He uses the, the example of the Trinity. So, so the Bible teaches that the Father is God and the Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God, all three of them. So you could just think about Jesus's baptism. The son comes out of the water, the spirit descends from heaven, and the father speaks to him. That's the Trinity, three persons. Well, then we get to the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, and he gives this formula for how to baptize people. And he says, baptize them in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy Spirit. So again, these three persons, however, Name there is singular. There's one God, one God in three persons. And that's what James points out here, the doctrine of the Trinity. And he says, even the demons believe that. So verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe. And it's not just that they understand the truth about God. It's not just academic. 
you know, we could probably go down the road to some universities in North Carolina and we could find religion professors that could outline the doctrine of the Trinity, but they don't believe it at all. They could tell you what the gospel writers say about the resurrection, but they don't believe that Jesus actually got up from the dead. That's not Satan. He really believes it. So not only does he understand it, he believes that these things are true. And see that this is the idea of faith that James was encountering. There were folks then, just like there's folks now, who think all it takes to have your sins forgiven is, is a mental understanding and belief. That at, at some point you could just fill out a card that says you really believe Jesus is fully God and fully man and he died to pay for your sins. And if you can check that box, then, then you'll end up in heaven. But what James says if it, uh, says is that if that's it, then Satan is going to be there when we get there and the demons, because they believe all of these things. They understand all of these things. But of course, that's crazy. Satan won't be in heaven. Satan hates the Lord. But see, even though he hates God, he still believes in God. So if faith is just bare mental agreement to a, to a set of truths, then Satan is all set. But it's more than that. To, to have faith in Christ in the way the Bible defines it is to love Christ. Jesus himself tells us this, John chapter 14, verse 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But of course, that's, that's exactly what Satan will not do. He doesn't honor Christ. He doesn't love Christ. So, so it's not just understanding. It's not just belief apart from action. It's a good thing to be reminded of, especially if, if, if we love theology and maybe if you're a reader and, and you really value the intellectual parts of discipleship, which are significant and important. But it's, it's important to remember Satan can more accurately represent God and Christ and the gospel and eschatology and every other ology than we can. But he doesn't love Christ. He, he doesn't have any fruit. So anybody that has a dead faith that doesn't produce love for God, doesn't produce love for others, they'll end up in the same lake of fire that Revelation 20 says Satan will end up in. That, that kind of faith, it doesn't produce works. That kind of faith won't save you. But, but do we see the opposite example in Scripture? So we see, okay, a dead faith, it won't save anybody. It doesn't produce fruit. But do we see the counterexample that a real living faith does produce fruit? And the answer is yes. And this is our third point. The history of redemption proves that true faith produces good works. James gives us the example of Abraham, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Should James goes straight to the example of Abraham, who's a really important figure in the Old Testament. He's the one that God really begins to produce his people through back in Genesis chapter 12. And, and what we see is that Abraham's faith produced good works. And he goes to the story of Abraham presenting his son to be sacrificed in Genesis chapter 22. You probably remember this passage, but God tells Abraham to, to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, and Abraham trusts God. And so he marches up that hill and he's ready to do that to sacrifice his only son to the Lord. It would take an enormous amount of trust, right? To obey God's command. But, but that's what faith does. Abraham's faith was living. So it produced love for God and trust in God and obedience to God. And it's a good question. You know, James leverages his story. So, so how about you, right? How about me? So has there been a time in the past few weeks where you were willing to sacrifice something you really loved? 
because you love the Lord more? Are there times over the past few years you can think about where you were willing to give up to sacrifice something you really loved because you love the Lord more? What we see in Abraham's life, real faith produces good works. Look at the other example he gives, verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? This is a story from the, the book of Joshua, from chapter 2. In fact, if, if you've got a Bible, it might be helpful to flip over to the left of the Old Testament to Joshua, right after the Pentateuch. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Joshua chapter 2. Uh, this is when Joshua, who was the new leader in Israel after Moses died, he sends out two spies to go into the promised land to scout it out and to see, okay, do we think that, that we could take this land? And you remember a lot of guys in Israel said, there's no way we can do this. The people are too big and it's too scary and, and it's not going to work. But of course, these two guys, Joshua and Caleb, trust in the Lord. And, and so the, the, uh, the king of Jericho, he, he hears there's Israelite spies in the city. And so he, he sends some soldiers to Rahab because somebody saw the Israelites go into her house. And this is the king's message in verse three. Bring out the men who have come to you. He's talking to Rahab who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. So put yourself in Rahab's shoes. God's people are hiding in your house. And the king has sent soldiers to ask you about this and to have you turn these guys over. And that, that'd be a scary thing. But listen to what she does. This is what she tells the governing authorities. Joshua chapter two, verse four. True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So at great risk to herself, she lies to these governing authorities to protect these men who were from the Lord. And she tells us why that is. It's in Joshua chapter 2, verse 10. She says, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So she'd come to believe in the one true God. And she knew that he was the one she was accountable to at this point. And so she trusts in him and that faith produces that courage. And see, that's, that's the unified witness of the Bible. R real faith inside of somebody, it always produces good works. In fact, in, in the adult education hour a little while ago, we talked about Hebrews 11. That's what Hebrews 11 is about. In fact, that, that might be an encouraging chapter to read this afternoon. You know, when you're hanging out, read Hebrews chapter 11 and, and see that's the unified witness of Scripture is that true faith in Christ always produces good works. It produces holiness. It, it produces action. And, and in that chapter, Abraham's offering of Isaac and Rahab's hiding the spies, they're both mentioned, as well as many other examples of true faith producing good works. Of course, that's what true faith does. And you don't even need the Bible to tell you this. Just think about the folks you know who really love the Lord. And think about the fruit you see in their life. That faith in Christ produces holiness. It produces love. That's what faith does. This is James's point at the end of verse 18. He says, and I will show you my faith by my works. So this is what's significant to understand and, and part of why the Lord designed it this way. So 
Faith is an invisible thing, right? It's intangible. You can't see it. So it's like the wind. So if I'm sitting in my office and I'm looking outside and it's windy and there's not snow on the ground yet, a lot of times I cannot tell that it's windy. The only way I can tell if it's windy oftentimes is when there's snow on the ground, which there's a decent amount of snow on the ground. They got 12. This is what the Lord does. My wife is so tough. It's great. But they got about a foot when I, the day after I left, which is just how it goes. But anyway, so you look outside and you can see if it's windy because the snow is blowing. So you need some evidence. There's something that needs to be there that that invisible thing is pushing. And then you know that invisible thing is there. So those are good works in the Christian life. It's like that snow that blows around where you get to see your faith in invisible thing in action. And you get to see that it's there. Real faith in Christ always produces good works. In fact, the, the connection between faith in Christ and good works is so sure. Look at what James says in verse 24. He says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, this sentence initially is confusing, right? In fact, coming out, you guys have been in Romans. Coming out of Romans, it is good if your ears perked up when you heard that. And you thought, wait a second, how does this work? Because initially it can be kind of confusing. Because if you're familiar with Paul's teaching about justification in Romans or Galatians or Ephesians or Philippians, among other places, you might think to yourself, wait a second, doesn't Paul tell me that a person is justified by faith alone? which is the opposite of what James just said? Well, the first part of what you're thinking is right. The second part is, is not right. Let me show you the difference here. So, so Paul does teach justification comes by faith alone. Romans chapter three, verse 26. For we hold that one is justified by, by faith apart from the works of the law. So the way we're given an innocent verdict from God isn't through working hard or being good or doing particular things or belonging to a particular church. No, the way we're given that innocent verdict, the way we become God's child, go from being his enemies to becoming his child, is by faith alone in Christ alone. That's it. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, or you don't know what you think about Jesus, that's the way for you to have your sins forgiven. Um, I wrapped up our taxes. I wanted to finish our taxes before I came. Listen. Doing your taxes, a thousand times more complicated than having your sins forgiven so you can become God's child and end up in heaven for eternity. Isn't that incredible? How many beneficial things in this life are simple? Hardly any of them. The gospel is so simple. Trust alone in Christ alone. It's an amazing thing. All you have to do, all you have to do is is decide that you'd rather have Jesus than your sin and to turn to him. Trust in him and his work on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. And when you trust in him alone for your salvation, he saves you. He covers your sins. He makes you God's child. If, if you want to talk more about that, be sure to grab me after the service. Talk to one of the elders here. Talk to one of the members of this church about the gospel. We can tell you more about that. So, so yes, Paul clearly teaches justification comes by faith alone. But since God is the author of all of Scripture, we know that two sections of Scripture will never contradict. They'll never butt up against each other because there's a single author, and he authored through Paul, Paul's letters and through James this letter. 
And on this point, they don't contradict one another either. In fact, in our passage, James teaches justification by faith alone. He just doesn't use the word justification. Look at verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled. It says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. James knows that God counted Abraham as righteous before he had offered Isaac. That's the whole point of what's happening there in Genesis 22. Paul actually leverages that in, uh, in the book of Romans, as does James here. He was counted righteous, not because of any good works, but as James rightly notes, because he believed in God. Justification by faith alone. So it's here even in this passage. But, but here's the key to resolving what looks like a contradiction between their teaching. Because when James talks about justification here, he does say faith doesn't come by, or justification doesn't come by faith alone. Uh, oftentimes the authors in scripture, they use a word two different ways. We saw it earlier with spirit, right? That can be used multiple different ways. Well, this word justification can be used in different ways as well. So I worked at this church in Washington, DC. There oftentimes be visitors from other countries. And so we would tell these guys or these gals where the bathroom was. But the funny thing was in the majority of the world, uh, uh, when somebody hears a bathroom, it makes sense, right? They think that's where they take a bath. So we would tell them where the bathroom was and they were thinking, why do you think I need to know where to take a shower? You know, while I'm in this church building, I'm not going to do that here. And one of the associate pastors who, who knew better than us would explain it to him. OK, yeah, yeah. So we call it a bathroom. There's not really a bathtub in there. Right. That is where you that's that's where you use the restroom or, or however they would say it. Well, that happens sometimes in scripture where different words are used different ways. So when Paul uses the word justified, he's, he's talking about God's declaration that somebody has become innocent of all guilt. It's the declaration of it. And that's given to us at the very beginning of the Christian life because we've trusted in Christ to pay for our sins. But see, James is using that word justified in a different way. What James is talking about is that innocent verdict being announced publicly. That's the way James is using justified. So, so if you're a fan of, uh, or if you keep up with the Supreme Court, or if you know the process, they make decisions about cases. And then there's a span of time before anybody else hears about that decision. In fact, before the internet, there would be crowds of reporters on the steps of the Supreme Court building waiting for them to hand out physical copies of the decision. And the reporters would be reading it until they kind of got the gist of it. And then they would call their editor and they would explain what, what was happening. So those justices, they'd already made the decision. The, the, the verdict had already been handed down, but then there was this separate event where it was being announced to the world. The first thing is what Paul's talking about. The judge has made the decision because you've trusted in Christ alone for your salvation. God has switched where he's innocent. That's what Paul's talking about by justification, justification by faith alone. What James is talking about is at the end of history, when that verdict gets announced to the world. That's what James is talking about when he uses the word justified. It's the same way Jesus uses it in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. And there Jesus says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Now, Jesus isn't teaching salvation by works. He's not saying if you say enough good words and don't say enough bad words, then you'll be justified. No, 
No, Jesus is talking about the announcement of your justification and that what God will use to make that announcement is to point to a real and living faith in believers. God will point to the fruit that's in our lives to give that innocent verdict. We see the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where Jesus himself is said to be justified by his resurrection from the dead. Did Jesus receive an innocent verdict for his sins? No, he didn't have any sins. No, there, Paul is using the word justified in the same way as James. He's saying it was announced to the world. That's part of what God does with the resurrection. He's telling the world, this man is innocent and death can't hold on to an innocent man. So that's the way that James is using it here. He's talking about the publication, the announcement that somebody really is in Christ. Now, of course, that that happens. The grounds of it is through faith alone in Christ alone, but only God can see faith. So when he's demonstrating it publicly to the universe, the thing he's pointing to is works, the fruit of faith. In fact, good works, they're, they're such a sure product of real faith that, that God can use it as the way to publicly justify his children, which is an incredible thing. And so as a Christian, the question to ask is the question we see at the end of verse 18 and, and think, can I say this about myself? Ask yourself, can I show my faith by my works? Well, if your faith in Christ is real, you'll, you'll be able to see that blowing snow, the evidence that faith really is working, that you have a true faith in Christ. Of course, the history of redemption shows that everybody that has a true faith in Christ produces good works. But but as we close, it's, it's not just that James uses the example of Abraham to, to show that a true faith always produces good works. He actually leverages Abraham to make the most important and central point of, of the passage. That's our final point this morning. And, and here it is. The point of your faith is to show good works. The point of your faith is to produce a holy life. So, so good works, they're an indicator that you have trust in Christ. It's what we just saw at the end of verse 18. But James says more than that. He says good works aren't just an indicator. Good works are the point of your faith in Christ. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Now, what does that mean? It was completed by his works. It, it doesn't mean it was perfected. Abraham didn't have a perfect faith. Nobody has a perfect anything except for Christ. So it wasn't that. Now, this word completed means to, to reach the intended goal. That's what he's saying, that these good works are faith completing, reaching the intended goal. So, so we can put this together now. What, what is faith's intended goal? What, what does God say the purpose of your faith in Christ is? It's new life. The point of your faith in Christ is new life. Let me read a couple of passages of Scripture that make this clear. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Paul says, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. So God chose you for holiness. That's the purpose. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. For what? For good works. So this is the design behind God giving you a faith in Christ. He, he gave you that faith, not just so it could sit in your head and make no difference in your life. He, he gave it to you to, to produce new life, to produce holiness, to, to produce good works. That's the point of our faith. Um, we've got five kids 
so I've been in ultrasound rooms a lot, which is always super fun, you know, getting to see pictures of the baby, an incredible thing when the baby's in utero. And, and we understood when we're looking at that picture, and it's the reason we're so excited about it, we understood that is our baby, right? It's not like it becomes the baby, uh, our baby when it's born. No, there in Maria's belly, that was my daughter. That was my son. Same thing for, for Maria. However, we also knew that Maria's pregnancy wasn't complete until she delivered that baby. That was the reason we were excited about the pregnancy. We, we were looking ahead to the, the completion of it. When we're not just holding an ultrasound picture, but, but when, when we're holding a baby. Well, your faith isn't complete until it comes out of your heart into your hands and produces good works. That, that's when our faith really comes to fruition. That's the whole point. Verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. We, we had a crack in our water line a few years ago. So we have a well, which is great because the water's free, but you've got to have a pump and it pumps it up into the house. Well, the well was good and the pump was good, but there was a crack in the line, right? So we, we weren't getting water in the house. Well, it's, it's not like we thought, well, the line is cracked, but the water's still in the well and the pump still works. So it's not perfect, but it'll be fine. Well, no, that's the whole point, that the mechanism was broken, right? We couldn't get the water from the well up to the house. That's, that's the point of having a well. So apart from that happening, it's worthless. That's what James is saying. A, a supposed faith that doesn't produce good works is, is the same way. In fact, in verse 20, James uses that same word. He says, faith apart from works is useless. So, so on the heels of this passage, how can we think we can have faith without works? How can we think that a faith without works will save us? So after seeing that faith without works is a dead faith and dead things don't get you anywhere, and, and seeing that in fact Satan has more of that dead faith than, than we could ever have, and, and seeing the entire history of redemption proves that real faith always produces good works, and, and then more than that, seeing that the main point of your faith is to produce good works. How can we see all that and not realize that faith without works won't save us? I love the way that this New Testament scholar, Doug Moo, says it. He says, faith that, that doesn't work, doesn't work. Isn't that good? Faith that doesn't work, meaning produce good works, that kind of faith doesn't work. But praise God, the faith he gives to us as Christians, the, the faith that connects us to Christ is living and active that produces a life that's pleasing to the Lord. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So let's pray what always be so in us. Let's pray. And Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that it's sufficient. And Father, there, there are many of us who at times in our Christian life would prefer to only think about justification in the way that Paul uses it. Some of us, Father, are, are given to license where, where we like thinking about the fact that all of our sins have been covered by the blood of Christ. And so sometimes we can use that as a license to, to sin. But Father, we're so thankful that your word is a balanced diet for us. And so you also give us this passage in James that makes it clear that the kind of faith that doesn't produce new life, that is not a true faith in Christ. That's not the kind of gift that you give us. Father, we're thankful you give us passages like this, this to, uh, to push us along, where the Holy Spirit leverages your word here 
and will use it to produce the things that you are calling for from us in this passage. We're so thankful, Father, that we can't boast in any way about fruit in our life, not even about our initial trust alone in Christ alone. You are the author of our salvation from the first page to the last page. We take such great comfort in that. And Father, we pray that uh, that you would continue to produce a stronger faith in us that produces a life that is pleasing to you. And we praise you for it. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Brother.